from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 4, page 520 of your book of praise. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we deal with an uncomfortable topic, God's just judgment on our sins. It's not hard for us to understand that God is a just God. Being just or fair in our dealings with others is something we normally applaud. The opposite is to be unjust or unfair. When someone deals unfairly with us, or shows favoritism, we often get upset. So we normally value God's justice, that he deals with us fairly. The problem is that part of God's justice is that he will mete out the punishment that our sins deserve. In paradise, God told Adam and Eve that the day they, eat from the tr- that the day they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. Man's fall into sin had terrible consequences. Our nature was corrupted so that we are conceived and born in sin. Of ourselves, we're unable to do any good and we're inclined to all evil. But that's not all. God will also bring his just judgment on mankind because of our sins. The Bible makes it clear that God is terribly angry with our sins that he'll punish them with a just judgment. Isaiah warned, according to their deeds, so will the Lord repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. Ezekiel said, therefore I will judge you, O houses of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 6, that God will render to each person according to his works. He says that for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The Bible speaks about how after this life we'll either join the Lord in heaven or else we'll be condemned 
to hell forevermore. That's a sobering message. But we need to hear it and understand it. God is terribly angry with our sins. Each of us deserves to come under his wrath and condemnation. Beloved, unless we understand that, there's no reason to repent of our sins or to seek to be saved from our sins. Our society's lack of understanding about God's wrath against sin is a great problem in our efforts to evangelize our neighbor. Most people assume that they're pretty good people, that God will accept them into heaven on the basis of their good deeds. The result is they don't feel the need to look for a savior to deliver them from hell. So this afternoon I preach you the word of God under the following theme. God's justice requires that our sins be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. We'll consider the hell that we deserve and the mercy that God gives. This afternoon we're dealing with the just judgment of God on our sins. Yet we're not always willing to concede that God's judgment is just. We see that in question and answer 9 of Lord's Day 4. It asks, But does not God do man an injustice by requiring his law what man cannot do? Basically, what this question is implying is that God is not wholly just or fair in his dealings with man. We are incapable of obeying the law God has given. If that's true, and it is, then how is it fair that God will judge us for not obeying? Imagine requiring a blind person to judge an art competition and then punishing him for not being able to do so. Or imagine demanding that a lame person run a marathon and punishing him for his failure to comply. We'd say that's simply not fair. Our catechism responds by pointing out that when God established his covenant with man, man was able to obey. God is not being unfair. He created man so that he was able to keep God's law. God did not set an unreasonable standard for man. God created man good and in his image. He created man in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is the ability to do what is right, to live according to God's law. Holiness is being set apart, dedicated to the service of God. The point is man was created both able and willing to live according to God's holy law. The reason why we're no longer willing and able to live according to God's standards is because we rebelled against the Lord. In paradise, our first parents, as representatives of all mankind, heeded the words of Satan and ignored the commandment of the Lord. The result is that God in his righteous judgment requires that our disobedience be punished. The Lord is terribly angry with our sins. He will punish them with a just judgment. God's judgment on sin has both a temporal and an eternal aspect. Already now we suffer God's judgment on sin. The result of the fall into sin was that God cursed mankind and he cursed this world. He told Eve that she would suffer pain in childbearing. He told Adam it was only in the sweat of his brow that he would eat 
because the ground was cursed and would bear thorns and thistles. God banished Adam and Eve from the sweet communion they enjoyed with the Lord in the Garden of Eden. They would experience hardships, pain, suffering, and sorrow on this earth. And then they would die. We, beloved, are well aware of the Lord's temporal punishment on our sins. We live in a sin-stained world. We experience so much brokenness. We have a fallen, sinful human nature. We struggle with pride, self-sufficiency, greed, lust, envy, covetousness, anger, and self-centeredness. We experience struggles in our relationships with God, family members, friends, brothers and sisters in the church. Times we get sick. We experience relentless pain. We have to deal with the breakdown of our bodies. We also face a final consequence of sin, our death. None of us will live forever. God told Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Yet the sorrows and the struggles of this life are but a small part of the Lord's judgment on sin. What we actually deserve is to suffer God's eternal wrath against our sins. As our catechism says, God's justice requires that sin committed against the holy majesty of God be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. God's just judgment against sin will be seen most clearly on the final day when he condemns many to eternal damnation. What does eternal damnation look like? What does it mean that God will condemn people to hell forevermore? Matthew 8, verse 12 describes being cast into hell as being thrown into the outer darkness. It says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 46 speaks of hell as going away into eternal punishment. Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10 draws on various Old Testament images of how the wicked will be forced to drink the wine of God's wrath. The picture that we get is a place of punishment, of eternal suffering. That's very different from our society's common conception of hell. Please remember that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He's put out a false message in terms of what hell looks like. Many people around us think of hell as a place where they can continue to live their unregenerate lives in peace. They talk about getting together with their friends to party and have fun. They make hell out to be a more attractive place than heaven, where they think people will be condemned to live a boring life, singing in choirs forevermore. But, beloved, listen carefully to what the Bible teaches us about hell. From Matthew 25, we read part of the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a parable about the final judgment. Jesus speaks about the condemnation that will come on those who did not know God or love or serve him in this life. He says on the final day, the judge will say to them, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This tells us something important about hell. Hell was initially prepared for the devil and his angels. After Satan rebelled against God, God took the initiative in fashioning hell. He prepared a place where Satan and his angels would be eternally condemned for their rebellion against God. In Revelation 9, verse 11, it's called the bottomless pit. In Revelation 19 and 20, it's called the lake of fire and sulfur and the second death. The point I want to make clear is that hell was not specifically made for sinful man. Hell was fashioned before mankind fell into sin. But with the fall into sin, hell became the place where the Lord would punish unbelieving and unrepentant mankind. In Revelation 20, 15, John speaks about how if anyone's name is not found in the book of life on the final day, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. What does the fact that God initially prepared hell as a place for the punishment of fallen angels tell us about God? Well, it tells us about how God is righteous or just. God has a sense of right and wrong. He makes a distinction between what is holy and what is sinful. God has a moral sense. And in that regard, we model him. Because God is righteous and holy, sin matters to him. The Bible describes God as having a strong emotional reaction to sin. He is angry with those who sin. Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He is prepared for him his deadly weapons, making arrows fiery shafts. It's because of his righteousness and holiness that God will punish all who rebel against him and who refuse to repent. He'll condemn them to hell forevermore. So what will it be like to suffer the condemnation of hell? One of the things the Bible makes clear is that hell involves being separated from God. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus pronounced this judgment on those who didn't live by faith, who said they followed Jesus but did not obey his word. On the final day, Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed. The message of the King of kings and Lord of lords to such people will be, Go away. I don't want you near me. Our reading from 2 Thessalonians 1 confirms this. It tells us about how Jesus and his mighty angels will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the worst thing about hell. 
On the final day, everyone will experience the glory of the Lord. And yet many will be banished from his presence. You see, beloved, on this earth, people still experience many good things, whether or not they're Christians. Our Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God grants people so many material blessings, food and drink, shelter and clothing, holidays and fun. God grants people relationships, marriage and family and friends. While on this earth, people still experience God's goodness and care. But all those blessings will be removed on the final day. Hell will not be a place where you can eat, drink, and be merry. It will not be a place where you get to hang out with family and friends. Being banished from the presence of the Lord means you'll no longer experience life and light. Hell will be a place of punishment. What will make that punishment infinitely worse is that those who are in hell will be able to see what they're missing out on in heaven. Most of us are familiar with the parable about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. It speaks about the rich man being in torment in hell, how he looked up and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Abraham answered by speaking about how a great chasm has been fixed between heaven and earth and how no one can pass between heaven and hell. Even though hell is a place away from God's presence, it's yet within his sight. Our reading from Isaiah 66 makes this clear. There the Lord speaks of the new heavens and the new earth and of all those who be gathered to worship him there. He says, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In eternity, those who dwell with God will be able to see his just judgment on the wicked and the rebellious. And the opposite's also true. The wicked and the rebellious will be eternally separated from God, from his goodness and his glory. But they will be able to see what they're missing out on. It's clear from Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. It says that if anyone worships the beast, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The wicked will suffer aloneness. They'll experience much pain and suffering. But the worst of it is, but the worst of it will be the anguish of seeing God and his people rejoicing in the joy and glory of heaven while they miss out. Why will God allow the saints to see the wicked in hell? Will that cause us much sorrow and sadness? No, beloved. 
It'll give us reason to praise God for his justice and his righteousness. In God's law, punishment was always public. If you stole from someone, you had to make restitution to that person. If you murdered someone or committed some other capital crime, the witnesses were required to throw the first stones to stone you to death. It helped to make what was wrong right again. Part of the vindication of God's people is that they will see the terrible vengeance God will bring on the wicked who persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this life. Hell is a terrible place, beloved. A place of eternal punishment. A place where God will remove himself and his goodness and grace, where he'll condemn people to suffer in anguish forevermore. It's not where you want to be in eternity. And yet it is what we deserve because of our sins, because of our rebellion against God. Every single one of us deserves to suffer God's condemnation. For by nature we're all depraved sinners In our lives, we say and we do many wicked things. So how can we escape the just judgment of our God? We deal with this in our second point, in that we consider the mercy that God gives. In our catechism, we see man try to escape responsibility for his sin with an appeal to God's mercy. Question answer 10 makes clear that God will punish our sins with a just judgment, both now and eternally. In question 11, we ask, but is not God also merciful? Yet we cannot play off one of God's attributes against another. God's mercy does not cancel his justice. Answer 11 makes it clear that God's justice requires that sin committed against him be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So does this mean that there's no way out? Does it mean that we cannot escape from the justice of God? Does it mean that we're all condemned to suffer hell forevermore? No. While it appears that Satan and his fallen angels were not given a second chance, mankind was. Before the fall into sin, Adam was warned, the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. When mankind in deliberate disobedience fell into sin, judgment day was delayed. It's true that spiritually, mankind died at that very moment. Our nature became corrupt. We became slaves of sin. Physically, Adam and Eve died some 900 years later. Yet the ultimate day of judgment was delayed until the second coming of Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. God's judgment on mankind is not universal. Already to Adam and Eve, the Lord promised a way out of their sins and misery. 
He said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In these words, we see God's promise that one of Adam and Eve's offspring would come to deliver them from the curse. The Messiah would come to redeem a people for himself, a people to whom he would grant forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. God deliberately delayed the final day of judgment. Paul explains why in Romans 2. He speaks about the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience in not immediately judging us all. Paul explains that God's kindness and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. God has delayed judgment day exactly for that reason. Peter teaches the same in 2 Peter 3. He writes about how the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the, and the destruction of the ungodly. So why is the Lord slow in fulfilling his promise to return? He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how can God show forth such mercy and still satisfy his justice? Didn't we conclude earlier that we cannot play off one of God's attributes against another? How is God's anger against our sins appeased? Only in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ that God's justice and his mercy come together. God's anger against all our sins are put on Christ. He bore God's wrath to pay for our sins. By doing so, he paid the price for the sins of all those who believe in him. And the result is that we may share in God's mercy in Christ. Yet, beloved, we need to understand what it cost our Savior Jesus Christ to appease God's wrath. Christ had to suffer the punishment we deserved because of our sins. He had to suffer everlasting punishment of body and soul. He had to suffer how for us. And yet that's the purpose for which Christ came into this world. He came to do the will of his heavenly Father. During his public ministry, he told his disciples he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes that they would condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and that he'd be raised on the third day. It's in Christ's crucifixion that we see him bearing God's wrath. While Jesus hung there on the cross, there was darkness over all the land from noon till three in the afternoon. It's during that time that God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. Christ suffered the torments of Satan and his evil spirits. He endured such terrible suffering that at the end of it he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only after that that he cried out once more and committed his spirit into the hands of his Father in heaven. 
Please note, beloved, that Christ's crucifixion was a public spectacle. Christ was publicly tried before Pontius Pilate. He was condemned to death before the highest court of the land. When he was crucified, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Luke tells us about the aftermath of Christ's crucifixion. He writes, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Why is it significant that Christ's crucifixion was a public spectacle? Because for God's justice to be appeased, public punishment needs to be meted out. That's how it was in ancient Israel. That's how it will be on the final day of judgment, when God's wrath is poured out on all those who are unbelieving and unrepentant. God publicly displayed his anger against our sins on Golgotha. When Christ suffered the agony and the shame of the cross, it's only because Christ bore that that he could deliver us from our sins. And yet with his suffering and death, Christ turned the table on his enemies. In ancient times, if you defeated a king and his army, it was customary to cut off their thumbs and their big toes and then lead them through the streets of your capital city in a victory procession. Soldiers with their thumbs cut off would never be able to hold a sword again. Those with their big toes cut off would have difficulty balancing and so taking a stand against you. Colossians 2.15 makes the point, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through his death and resurrection, Christ made clear that he had won the victory against Satan and all his evil forces. Christ's victory over the demonic forces is clear. And that Satan and all his followers were thrown down out of heaven. Jesus Christ now reigns as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So where does that leave us? We've seen that God's justice requires that sin committed against him be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. We, along with the rest of mankind, deserve to suffer the punishment of hell forevermore. Yet God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're redeemed from the wrath to come. Christ gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for all our sins. In him, we may share in God's life and light. Yet, beloved, be warned that the Bible's testimony of hell is not an empty threat. God prepared an eternal fire for the devil and his angels and for all those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There's a call 
for each one of us to repent, to turn away from our sins, to put our faith in the only Savior. The call for each one of us to live in Christ. How you live now will affect you eternally. If you deny Christ and live for yourself in rebellion against him, you will suffer the terrors and the agony of hell forevermore. But if you know Christ and love and serve him in your life, you'll share in the joy and the glory of life everlasting. Amen.